Welcome to Zero Downtime, the new podcast brought to you by DCD's editorial team in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical infrastructure provider. Vertiv has kept the world's leading businesses connected for more than 50 years. We build, deliver, and support critical infrastructure that's available, sustainable, and future-ready. Visit us at vertiv.com and see what we can do for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of DCD Zero Downtime. I'm Georgia, and today I'm joined with Elena Badiola from Exit Infrastructure. Uh, Elena, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Um, do you maybe want to just start by introducing yourself and what you do? Indeed. So my name is Elena Badiola. I am a telecommunications engineer. I have been working in the telecommunications industry for over 17 years in different roles, like as an operations and maintenance, a sales engineer, planning and deployment, um, all subsea related, really. And uh, for the past two years, I have been working with DEXA as their dark fiber, subsea services, and collocation product manager. Brilliant. Okay. Um, so we're going to focus on subsea infrastructure today. Um, I kind of wanted to just talk a, like a little bit about how the subsea cables, how they are installed and how they're used from beginning to end. So, I mean, should we start with the, the planning side of things? So like who, who is it that's actually requesting these subsea cables? Is it the governments? Is it the companies? Is it EXA who's proposing them? How does it work? That's a very good question. So it depends, really. Um, that's, going, that's how I'm going to be uh, starting many of my replies. So it depends. <laughs> um, it depends on who needs the traffic to be connecting from the a point to the set point. In some cases, in some uh, countries or regions, because of lack of uh, international connectivity, it's the government who can be a promoter uh, of these subsea cables in order to have like an internet um, access for the traffic to their country. Or uh, they're trying to promote having a second uh, and diverse access uh, to be more reliable, you know, as a diverse uh, solution. Um, as the content of the of the internet has changed like the, the traffic type that is nowadays like sent from a to c it has changed and mostly right now most of the traffic is uh, driven by content providers and hyperscalers as we, as we call them those are the google amazons microsoft uh, meta etc those are lately have been the promoters of this kind of, of uh, systems of subsea systems in order to connect their inter their traffic uh, to international data centers. Mm. And and before this time, it used to be internet service providers or local and regional uh, internet service providers who would be connecting. Uh, uh, who would be using these subsea cables for uh, voice and for data international connectivity. Mm -hmm. So once the, um, once the subsea cable has been commissioned or there's, you know, there's the decision that you're going to pursue it, what happens next? 
Yeah, so your first, um, your, your first question is where, what, what data centers do I want to connect? What are, my a, what are my A end and my Z end? And how much traffic do I need? You have to think that uh, the life expectancy of a subsea cable is 25 years. And usually um, your traffic forecast in a company, it is very hard to have a, a reliable traffic forecast of more than three years or even that is difficult. So you have to, to guess how many fiber pairs, how much traffic you're going to, to need to connect from A to, to, to Z or to multiple ends, right? Because uh, cables are not always like point-to-point um, -point, uh, cable systems, but rather connecting different countries with one single, with one single cable. So once that you know how much traffic uh, are you going to need to connect? Then uh, you can assess if you can find a solution for that with an already existing cable in the market, or if you need a new one because of diversity, or because you are planning to connect to somewhere that has not been connected yet. And if, if um, you're willing to use like an already existing route, then you also have to think if you don't mind using already existing infrastructure, like already existing cable landing systems that are connecting other cable systems. And it is very important this bit also, um, the terrestrial connectivity from those landing points for the cable system to the data center or the data center region that you're trying to connect. So I used to have a boss who said that even though these um, subsea projects are long and complex, sometimes the most complex bit is actually connecting the cable terrestrially from the cable landing station to the data center that you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. uh, what about things like marine surveys? Because obviously these are going you know, across the oceans and I mean, sure. the seafloor sea itself is also very, I mean, it's quite volatile. It's changing quite a lot just uh, throughout time. How do you prepare for that? Sure. So um, the next step would be uh, once, that you, then once you know where you want to connect and how much traffic uh, you need and if you mind um, using existing infrastructure or, or you want to build a completely new one is that you usually will um, have a desktop a desktop study is a survey done by, um, by an external company. And in that study, um, there are several very relevant parts. The environmental study will also um, allow you to decide if there are any regions that you'd like to avoid. Um, there's an, also another very important side to this study which is the permits. Permits are the part of the critical path for the, uh, for the project. And um, that's a study on the different permits that you're going to need uh, to have in place in order to do the route survey, which is what you were considering early. And that will be like a field, let's say a route, um, a route study of where you're planning to lay your cable. And that happens later. I'll get to that. <clears throat> and also, um, like any local, regional, or national permits that you're going to need. Some, and who needs, 
who is responsible from obtaining and having those permits in place. As I said, this is the most risky and part of the critical part for the system. So that part of the study is very relevant. Um, once that you have this, then you kind of have a clear idea of what your landing uh, points might be, what the route would look like for your system, and then it is time to, to get to a different phase of the, of the project, which is less technical, maybe more business development-like. And that is um, uh, gathering the finance uh, for your project, like knowing if you have your own funds or if you're going to need, also depending on your traffic needs, if you're going to need some other partners in order to, be, to have a consortium together and build that system uh, with another partner and um, design the topology of your system. This is, am I interested in only linking two points? Am I interested in allowing by installing um, some devices that are called branching units? And I can place those in the water and not having them connected. Um, a branching unit is a, basically an optical and an electrical divider of the signal, of the optical signal. So that allows you to have like a trunk and to have branches to that system connecting additional additional sites. Mm. Um, those branching units, it's uh, they are very relevant because um, these systems are take a long time to be planned and deployed. And as I said, the life expectancy is 25 years. So you might think that even though there's not a business case maybe for connecting another place right now, maybe there will be an opportunity later um, down the road um, to connect the trunk of your system to another additional, to another additional landing point via a branch. And um, that's usually a very good um, strategy to have in place. Mm. Um, this is possibly, I mean, slightly a naive question, maybe, but I, I mean, you know, subsea cables have been around for a really long time. So obviously, there are going to be some landing stations that are quite old. Um, it, is that uh, like, are there risk factors to do with that? I mean, you know, these are like a coastal infrastructure. Oh, I, do you have to kind of bear in mind, like maybe like erosion and stuff like that? These uh, older landing stations, maybe they're just, they're no longer viable and then you have to build a new one. Is that quite a regular thing? It's a good question. And um, there's a point there about beach erosion and um, climate change and everything. Um, there's a good, whenever there's there's a, an existing cable landing station, if they have enough um, space and the owner of the cable is okay with having, um, with having their system landing in the same building as another one for diversity reasons, mm -hmm. I mean, um, you can repurpose, you can refurbish uh, those cable landing stations to adapt them to your, to the, to the needs that you have nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you need to upgrade the power, enhance their security systems, um, 
uh, add additional sources of power, make them more reliable, etc., etc. Also, depending on where you're building that, right? Um, different regions of the world have special have different needs. For example, I can think of Florida and cable landing stations having to be uh, proofed against hurricanes, right? So um, that's a very valid question. And since these are lengthy and, um, and expensive infrastructure or bits of the infrastructure to build uh, also in time, it is usually a good idea. And cable promoters have been reusing um, these uh, these cable landing stations. There are many examples. Like I, I can think of some that I have been part of, like in uh, Maria, for example, in the case of Spain, like refurbishing an old uh, telephonic central uh, uh, place. Um, different cable systems landing in uh, in older cable landing stations in the UK as well. And in North America, so yeah, it's a it's a common practice in the industry. Is that something that I mean? Obviously, you're like you mentioned the climate related issues. I mean, things like a uh, wildfires, flooding, hurricanes. It seems like they they are getting from. I mean, from the conversations I've had with scientists exploring the area, it's not that they're happening more often, but when they are happening, they're tending to get more and more intense and I guess vicious almost. Um. Is it in increasingly like, are we having to plan for much greater um, incidents than in the past? That's a great question, and unfortunately, that's the case, right? So you one can think like, well, fires. Why is it? How is it going to affect like to something that is under the sea? But indeed, like the terrestrial bits of the systems are um, key, are like as important as the subsea, right, for like the end-to-end -end connectivity. So just this summer, um, we had some wildfires, uh, unfortunately, in Sicily that affected the terrestrial connectivity from the cable landing stations from the subsea systems into mm -hmm. the rest of, of Italy, right? So, um, yes, there are, a, um, there are business continuity plans, right? You cannot really plan for every specific situation but you do have like a business continuity plan that usually entails like what's going to be your um, big picture strategy in terms of internal communication and external communication and it is very important that you have like strong local teams to have like good relations you know with local agencies local government uh, agencies and local internet service providers you know to have like a a fast recovery uh, as fa a recovery as fast as possible and and then after the emergency situation and the traffic has been restored then you can indeed assess um, the lessons that you learned during that situation in order to improve your plan you can't really plan for every possible situation but um, you have like a master plan uh, that then you adapt to that specific situation, right? And, and this is only talking about that specific case, but also there have been um, cases, situations um, around El Nino, right in South America, in which uh, with the tides and the beach erosion, then the cables in the, at the beach were exposed 
were exposed every now and then. So then you have to go and rebury that and then try to bury that deeper in the beach to avoid exposure because once the cable is exposed, it's much easier for it to have an outage, right? Mm -hmm. Or even the situation in which you have had to to bring like a beach manhole more inland that happened in a system in Argentina that I was in charge of uh, operations and maintenance. And we had to bring that beach manhole further inland because the, the beach, there was a lot of beach erosion and that was going to be exposed. And that was indeed a, a very risky situation that we wanted to avoid. Mm. With the, the erosion and stuff as well, I mean, obviously there are, there are kind of solutions that you can, I guess, build barriers and stuff like that mm -hmm. to try and reduce that. Mm. Um, again, from some people that I've spoken to, it's uh, an argument they kind of made is like when, when you do build those barriers, though, you also risk increasing erosion in like the adjacent areas just because you are fundamentally changing the kind of the way that the tide will hit the coast. Is that something that you then have to consider as well when you're when you're making decisions like that? Absolutely. And there have also been the case in which there has been a development in the beach that has nothing to do with it, but then it affect that has nothing to do with climate change. I mean, and then that affects your uh, your cable, right? So indeed, I think that the environmental um, permits are getting more and more restrictive and more and more thorough because of mainly because of this because now when you're trying to plan um, what you're going to do at the coast there are many um, circumstances that are taken into account that used to not be so much taken into account you know I don't know 15 or 20 years ago you know there are all the stakeholders what's that how is um, uh, climate change or erosion um, forecast going to affect this beach in the next 25 years. This is a very long time. So I think that that's why all these permits are now taking longer. And also, as I said, even scientists don't really know um, how the climate change is going to affect because they're seeing now like... Um, uh, it's been faster and more severe when the, what, than what they were forecasting, right? So in many cases, it's also like about how you react um, after you've started to see all these impacts on your systems. And indeed, in the communities that you're serving and in the communities that where you're landing your system. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so... Obviously, you know, the, this this stuff is kind of maintenance-based. And then, unfortunately, there are times that breaks in the cable happen, not just at the coast, but actually, you know, halfway across the ocean. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little bit about what happens then and maybe, like, some experiences that you've had? I did. Yes, I was in charge of operations and maintenance for a cable system for five years. So we had a bunch of outages. Um, most of them were uh, caused by fishing activity. So once that happens, um, the first goal is to is for location to exactly know uh, where it has happened and if there's a clear break in your system or if it's a shunt fault. And the shunt fault is like a loss of um, isolation in the 
copper layer of your of your system, and that uh, affects the electrical um, fitting of the system, but it doesn't necessarily affect like the ability of the system to to carry traffic, right? So then maybe you can plan for that repair to be done later on according to your business needs and to regulatory situations that might be happening. So once you've located the fault and you've um, assessed if there's traffic affection and if you're going to uh, try to carry out the repair as soon as possible, then uh, you do the call out of the, of the ship. And mm. companies have maintenance contracts with um, special aid companies that are the owners of the ships and who, um, which are the, the companies that carry out repairs. So it's very important to keep a cool head and just stick to your to your process, right? So you call out um, the the ship. Uh, you assess if uh, there are spare there's a spare cable or spare repeaters slash uh, branching units and joint pins on board the repair ships, or if this ship needs to go to a depot to load those. Uh, those spares that you will use during the repair, right? To to replace the the part that has been affected. So, in my case, as you were asking, um, many times you you try to have somebody representing the company's interest, the owner's interest, on board during the repair to just like be. Um, uh, somebody who is in touch with the company and and who is defending the interest of, of, of the company, of the owner of the system, right? So that's uh, called like a representative on board. I was a rep on board twice. Um, uh, sorry, I was a rep on board once. And um, this was a long time ago. I had so once that you decide that you have uh, time enough time to have the the representative get on board the ship uh, then he or she flies to where the ship is going to be um, loading the 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 spares and uh, if there needs to be a crew change or the people the experts are going on board the ship um, then that person the rep gets on board and then the transit starts uh, to to where the repairs going to take place. Well, in my case, um, I was on board for five weeks because um, there has there had been a, an earthquake that had caused a mudslide in the coast of Honduras. So there was an outage that affected uh, three companies, three different systems, mm. who were like sharing um, the cost. Uh, of, of having this this ship uh, via a contract that's called the uh, ACMA, which is like a maintenance uh, agreement. And so I I went um, I, I was on board I, I I boarded the ship and then we took to the to the repair site. That was like a five day transit time from Curacao to the board of Hondu to the coast of Honduras. This was just like twelve miles of the of the coast, so you could really see and have cell signal uh, every once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for five weeks because after the repair of the system that I was uh, representing, then there were other two systems that had to be that had to be repaired as well. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't go I couldn't go home after mine was done because indeed every second counts and that means uh, money and 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 companies don't want to. To waste any second, right? Like by allowing you to 
to go to the to go uh, to shore and mm-hmm. go home because then uh, you know there's customs involved etc so um after five weeks um of us trying to find different solutions uh for me to go home there was going to be a freighter that would come and, and take me home um well um uh, i finally um when the, fa- the day that I was finally going to go home, there was a military coup uh, in Honduras. So I was very lucky that I was not in the midst of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so very lucky. Super lucky, actually. It was a very confusing morning uh, for everybody. But, um, you know, um, it was a very interesting uh, experience for me. Um, our The repair, con- all things considering that there had been much light, um, it was a it was a very uh, our repair was very fast it only mm-hmm. took like 10 days and we're talking about uh, repair at uh, 2000 meters water depth um these repairs uh, despite what people people might think they're very manual okay so um you don't really use robots or you don't really use divers at uh, these uh, water depths when the water uh, depth is uh, is lower or is higher than 2,000 meters, it, uh, you use grapnels in order to to cut the cable and hold the cable and, and, and take it on board and do the repair on board. Because as, as you can imagine, um, there, the conditions of humidity, dust control, stability, temperature, etc., in order to do splices in fiber optics have to be very much controlled, right? It's not like you send just a diver and they do it. No, 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 that's not how it's done. Mm. So as I said, it we were very lucky because despite of the of the holding drive there, it was rather easy. Despite of the mudslide, it was rather easy to find the cable and to bring them on board. And so were the other two repairs after the one that was carried out for, for the system I was representing, right? Mm-hmm. So um we were very lucky as i said and everything turned out great there have been other other repairs that i was um overviewing later where i was not on board that took out longer and you can imagine that during this time there's a lot of pressure coming from the company coming from senior management stakeholders regulation agencies so that this traffic the system is restored as soon as possible right and you're there in the ship having um, to be uh, an intermediator between the company and the people who are trying to do their best uh, to do the job as well as they can in not very easy uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. I mean, just on um, like a human level, I guess, what, what was living on a ship for five weeks like? <laughs> when I think of this, I was on board for five weeks with 57 men and myself. That was going to be another question. Yeah, how many other women were there? Zero, zero. (laughs) And I was 25 at the time. So I guess that I was very brave and I never really gave it a second thought. Um, To be honest, it was mainly boring, you know, because um, after the repair was done, well, there were many hours of not sleeping because when it starts, it just carries out until until it is done. And those were like there were many uh, many 
hours where I didn't sleep. But after that, then you are on board the ship for like four weeks. You're seeing um, the coast like 10 miles away and you are the trapped. It was like the hurricane season or like the summer season, tropical storms and the visa connection is affected indeed by storms. So uh, internet connectivity was on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, well, it was tax season. So the tax... Um, the tax men back in Spain didn't really understand why I was gone for five weeks. Um, <laughs> so I had a I had a tooth infection. It was intense, oh, but um, but um, I got my sealants. Um, you know, in my family, um, both my my grandfathers were sailormen or fishermen. So I am. Um, I am really close um, to, uh, I was born by the seaside, etc. So for me, it was a very special uh, moment that I'm always going to remember. And I was, I, I, this is the part of the job that I've always liked, you know, that it is a very physical uh, infrastructure. It's, it's like very physical. You're discussing things that can be touched and seen. I remember that once I went, um, I, I was sleeping and when I woke up in the morning, I went, um, you know, to the bridge, and they had uh, they had uh, retrieved some mud from the seabed, and they had put it in a in a in a glass for me, saying like, "Go and enjoy your like a, a mask from like mud from the bottom of the Caribbean." <laughs> so, no, I, I must say that they were they were really kind people. I enjoyed very much being there, and it was it was um, intense, but it was. It was interesting, and it's definitely an experience that I'm I'm never going to forget about. Mm-hmm. Did um I mean did you kind of make any lasting friendships with the other people on board? Not with this one, really, no. Um, but I have been fortunate enough that I have met different crews in different vessels. I remember very much a Spanish vessel that I remember that I met at some other point. And they were wonderful people. I, I had a lovely time with them. I I mean, um, uh, they have not lasted because also like their lives are very, are diff- very different from mine. You know, they are usually in campaigns like two months on, two months off. They, uh, and um, it's a very different life from what we have. But um, that didn't mean that it was not very meaningful for me indeed. Mm. Um. Okay, so, I mean, I guess we can talk a little bit more just generally about the industry. Um, in our prep call, you mentioned, like, how important it is to be neutral. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, um, it is difficult to have, like, a global view on this because the markets, the regions are from different from it, uh, uh, one from another, right? And as I was saying before, in some cases, there's some uh, regions that um, rely so much on, on, on subsea cables because that's like the only uh, connectivity, uh, internet connectivity, or the main internet connectivity that they have to the rest of the world, uh, right? And I'm thinking, for example, of the Tonga Islands and the uh, when they were isolated because of, of, of the outages that they had because of... Uh, of the volcanoes so it is 
that situation is very different from the situation of other countries in which there are plenty of subsea systems. What I think um, is that we do as an industry have a responsibility for the society that we live in. And internet connectivity is so important um, for the distribution of, of, of news, for allowing people to be um, in contact with the families who are far away, etc., etc., for entertainment, for so many different for for so many different reasons that we have to bear in mind that we have a responsibility in this society when it comes to promoting connectivity and from being neutral and um, allowing that um, companies will do their business and that government uh, uh, promoted cables uh, will have a place in the industry as well. And what I mean with this is that we're seeing in, in the last years that um, open cable learning stations have become, have become a, a, a requirement from many of the owners of the systems indeed. And what we mean with open cable learning stations is that where in this cable station where you land one or two or three uh, subsea systems, then you are able to connect to different terrestrial providers, right? To get to different places. And what we mean with, uh, with open is that you allow um, different uh, terrestrial companies to come to your cable and station and you allow con uh, cross connections between the subsea systems and the terrestrial uh, providers. And not only that, because you can allow them, but if you like charge excessive fees for these cross connections, you're not really allowing that, are you? Like if you charge fees that you make the investment cases not go through, and I have seen this happen, then you're not really, you're preventing that system from happening. You're not really enabling business for your potential customers um, who can, who in the wholesale business can be your customers and your competitors at the same time. Mm -hmm. So as, uh, since I joined EXA and EXA comes from uh, Interroot and uh, Hibernia, and they have uh, 20 years of experience in laying cables. And we were thinking, well, they were merging like the two different companies with their experience in laying cables in the Atlantic and laying cables in the Mediterranean or allowing cables in the Mediterranean land in, in their stations in Matsara or um, promoting other systems in the Mediterranean as well. For me, it was very important that we were neutral that um, that we promoted, that we believed um, in open cable landing stations that allow connectivity and, and our uh, customers and that allow our partners and sometimes they can be our competitors as well to to um, to succeed in their business because that's good for the industry and this is a very small industry in a certain bit but it's a very big industry. Uh, with uh, we serve the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is the motivation for them to, I guess, keep it to themselves? Like, is, is it purely from a kind of money side of things and competition, or is there any kind of, I don't know, um, like security concerns and stuff surrounding it? 
in my experience, it has been uh, mostly about protecting like the local, uh, the local business uh, from from uh, from others uh, to access like the local the local connectivity business. Mm. And then in some other, and as I said, the reality of the reality of the world is so complex that I am like really generalizing here, you know, because it changes dramatically. We're discussing North America and Europe from South America and Africa, which has bloomed in um, in the last years and with um, a Middle East as well or Asia, you know, it is really difficult to 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 uh, state um, things that work in every single in every single market in every single region because they d differ very much from one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, okay, uh, Elena, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, that's pretty much covered it. Uh, and thank you to everyone who is listening. I hope you'll tune into a future podcast with us. And if you have any suggestions of topic ideas, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for having me, Georgia. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. Sustainability is no longer a nice to have. It's a priority. Vertive Power, cooling and IT management solutions for critical infrastructure are designed to reduce the use of energy, water, and space. From innovative liquid cooling to dynamic grid services, we work hand-in-hand -hand with customers to enable them to meet their data center sustainability goals. Visit us at Vertive.com and see what we can do for you. Thanks for listening to the Zero Downtime Podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical digital infrastructure provider. Don't forget to like this podcast and subscribe to our channel. We'll see you again next time.